Good morning. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. I'll begin reading at verse 13. Congratulations on making it here by 8 a.m. We're glad to have you be in the Word together. I hope you have your Bibles ready because um, we're going to be looking at the text quite a bit um, this morning, and I want you to be able to follow along with me. Isaiah 52. We're going to start reading in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing on it. Father, we come before you humbly, recognizing our need for your son, who came as our mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that your spirit would attend the word and illumine our minds, turn on the lights in our dark minds and give us understanding of your word. Cause us to think well of Christ and his work. We pray this morning we would behold your servant and his wise work on our behalf that he would be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so far through the conference, I keep sitting here and, or standing in the back and looking up here and seeing this statement that we make that clear gospel proclamation is necessary for true gospel understanding. And there are really two parts to clear gospel proclamation. First, the method preaching, the preaching, and preaching clearly. Thus, you must know the language and the culture of those to whom you're preaching. And Brooks spent some time on that yesterday. We have to be clear in that regard. But second is the message. It's not just gospel proclamation, but it's the gospel that we're proclaiming. So the message has to be clear. You have to get the gospel right in your own language if you ever hope to be clear in another. There's one thing I want every young pastoral and missionary candidate to know. One thing. I, I, I was thinking about this and reflecting the last couple of weeks as um, I knew we were coming up to this conference and I knew that I was preaching this morning on this day that I turned 50 years old. And I thought to myself, I am 50 years old today and there is more hair in my comb than there should be. But these are the things that happen, and now I have to wear glasses, and I see the effects of the fall just coming more and more and more, and that's okay. But, but here I'm thinking, 
at 50 years old, what, what do I want the young people in my church, many of whom are present, who might go into pastoral ministry or missions, the young men, some of whom are present, who I know are about to head off to seminary to go into pastoral ministry or have already just completed seminary and are looking toward pastoral ministry, what do I want them to know? I was thinking about our missionaries. One of our missionary families, they, they do a great job of staying connected. They, they sent me a video this morning of their kids singing happy birthday to me. And I was thinking of them on the field, and I thought, they're probably going to hear this message. I'm quite certain they'll listen to this conference. What do I want them to hear from me? I want to say to them, you have one job. You guys ever seen that ESPN special? You have one job. You have one job. Preach Christ and Him crucified. That is your one job. Be biblical, be simple, be clear, and be relentless about the message. Christ crucified. And the method, preaching. In recent missiological work, there has been an attack on both the message, Christ crucified, and the method, preaching. That attack with regard to the message has come as a repudiation of penal substitutionary atonement. The, the notion that someone else paid the penalty for sin that was due to me because of my guilt before God. And that's someone else being Christ. That has been under assault. In an effort to make the unbelieving world see our message as wisdom... There are false workmen who are attempting to empty the cross of its power. They are emptying the cross of its power. Here's what they think. When Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek, seek wisdom, but we, his next phrase is going to be, we think of ways to give the Jews what they're demanding and give the Greeks what they're looking for. That's what we do. They have questions that are interesting to their culture, and so we come in and we use the Bible to answer the questions of their culture, entirely ignoring that their hearts and minds are darkened by sin. For the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. Because what could be known about God was plain to them. God has made it plain. But they have suppressed that truth, and therefore God has given us over. This is all of us. Given us over to a darkened mind. Corrupt minds. So maybe the questions our culture is asking are incorrect. Maybe they're wrong. What Paul says is, Jews demand signs. That's what they're looking for. Greeks seek wisdom, that's what they're looking for. We preach Christ and him crucified. We tell them what they need. Now, these men don't typically deny, just outright deny penal substitutionary atonement. They redefine it. They redefine it to the degree that you, you start to feel like you need to quote Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. You know which quote I'm getting at. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. 
Now, Aubrey Sequeria is going to get into this in some depth in the next session, and so I don't want to steal his thunder. He's going to come after how penal substitutionary atonement's been being denied, and I, I would greatly encourage you to, to be here. To, don't, don't mingle like some of us can tend to do and talk out there. Come listen to it. So, so to start our day out, instead of going there, I want to look at two, two passages that really address two issues. First, Christ's priestly service of offering himself for the nations. That's why we're here in this fourth servant song, Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. And really, this, this is the introduction to a servant song that takes us all the way through Isaiah 53. But we're here first, Christ's priestly service in offering himself for the nations. That's the first point we're going to look at. Secondly, the priestly service of Christ's church in offering the nations to the Lord. So we're going to look at those two ideas this morning. So we'll turn over in point two to Romans 15. But let's look first at Christ's priestly service of offering himself for the nations. Christ's priestly service of offering himself for the nations. Turn with me to, oh, you're already probably there, Isaiah 52, 13. Notice what it says to begin. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now, I want to stop and talk about this servant. This is the fourth, if you will, servant song of Isaiah in which we're thinking about this one who is the servant, the one upon whom we're supposed to look, the one we behold, who we're paying attention to, this servant, and notice he'll act wisely, this servant and his work. We preach Christ, person, and him crucified, his work. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. As I said, this is the fourth servant song. And if you don't know the context of these servant songs in Isaiah, they're in the second half of Isaiah in what some scholars will call the book of comfort. Why do they call it the book of comfort? Look over at Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. Just keep your hand in Isaiah 52 and look at Isaiah 40 and verse 1, which begins, we often refer to as the book of comfort. We've, we've heard in Isaiah 1 through 39, chapters 1 through 39, largely, largely we've heard the message of the prophet as he comes like a prosecuting attorney and holds up the law of God, the Torah, and compares it with the history of Israel and says, you've been in sin, the exile God has promised is coming for you. It's coming for the northern kingdom. It's already come for the northern kingdom as they've been carried off into Assyria. And now it's coming, the northern kingdom of Israel, now it's coming for the southern kingdom of Judah as they're going to be carried off by Babylon. And so then we come to this section of Isaiah from chapter 40 all the way through the end, which we often refer to as the book of comfort. Here's why, Isaiah 40 verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The Lord has sent Israel and Judah into exile for their sins, for their national sins, for the sins of their kings, for their idolatry. 
for their violation of the law he's given them. But the Lord promised salvation to Israel, and he promised judgment to our enemies. We can see that promise in Deuteronomy. He promised a new covenant, a restoration of Israel, a second exodus out of exile and into the new heavens and new earth. Not just the promised land, but into the new heavens and new earth. And this work of salvation would be accomplished by the servant whom Isaiah is talking about. So who is this servant? Who is the servant? Look at Isaiah chapter 41. Chapter 41 and verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This servant is chosen of God. He is the offspring of Abraham, God's friend. Israel is corporately identified here as the servant. Yet this servant is also spoken of not only corporately as Israel, but as one man, a man who is the offspring of Abraham, my friend. This servant, if you know the Bible story, this servant is the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of the serpent. He is the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the son of David who will rule and reign eternally. That's who this servant is. He is the federal head of Israel who represents them. And what does the servant if you will, the servant passage or servant songs tell us about him. Look at Isaiah 42 in verse 1. Isaiah 42 in verse 1, you'll notice this language again. Behold my servant. Look. Pay attention to my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. I want to take it forward just a little bit more. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretch them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. The servant is God's chosen son. The servant is anointed by the Holy Spirit and delights, and God delights in him. 
Think of Luke 3.22 at Jesus' baptism. As the Spirit is poured out upon Christ in his anointing for ministry, and the Lord says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He is the righteous and just king. Further, this king is given as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not snuff out. He will establish righteousness and justice on the earth. He will open blinded eyes, free the captives, and shine light in the darkness. Now look at Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 and verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Israel is the servant God called from the womb and named in the womb. He has a mouth like a sharp sword, and this servant will restore the northern kingdom of Israel And the southern kingdom of Judah, a.k.a. Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. Further, he'll be a light for revelation to the nations, also known as the ends of the earth. Now, I'm assuming you've read the Gospels and Acts and all kinds of descriptions of Jesus are popping in your head right now. Look at Isaiah 50 in verse 4. Isaiah 50 in verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who were taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens awakens my ear to hear as those who were taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turn not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. See, this servant will listen to God's word and teach it. He will be the prophet better than Moses. 
He will not rebel against the Lord. He will be hated by all men. He will set his face like flint toward the work the Father has given to him. And he shall not be put to shame. His enemies will wear out like a garment, but he will remain the same and his years will have no end. Listen, friends, I just quoted from Luke 9:51, Hebrews 12:2, Hebrews 1:10 through 12. Are you tracking? This servant will be the king who saves his friends and subdues his enemies. The servant will also be the prophet who proclaims God's law, God's righteous judgment for sin, and God's coming salvation of his friends and the destruction of his enemies. This servant will suffer in some way, and he will save people from Israel and from the nations. Now, how can that be good news for us? How can that be good news for us? How can the coming of a righteous king, the righteous king, who establishes justice, be good news for us unless we're his friends? And how do we become his friends? Further, how can the coming of a prophet who proclaims God's law to us and shows us our sin and coming judgment, how can that prophet coming be good news for us? Unless we're those who are being saved. And how could rebellious sinners like us be saved by the righteous one rather than conquered and destroyed by him? What separates us from those who are being as those who are being saved from those who will be trampled underfoot in the wine press of God's wrath Isaiah 63 What separates us from them This brings us to the fourth servant song That was all set up Isaiah 52:13 Note how it starts Behold my servant shall act wisely. Note the similarity between this introduction and the first servant song in Isaiah 42. One, behold my servant. We're told to look, to pay attention, to behold Yahweh's servant. Most expressly, we're told to behold the servant's wise action. You're going to see the wisdom of God on display in his work. A wisdom that is foolishness to the world and that we don't need to recast in accord with the wisdom of the world to make it wise. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. So we want to ask, what's the servant's wise action? We want to behold the servant and his work. What is his wise work? Please hear this. I want to sum it up this way. The servant's work that we're being asked to behold is his priestly service of offering himself as an atoning sacrifice for the nations. It's my aim to demonstrate that, and I want to argue that apart, please hear this, apart from the priestly service of Christ offering himself for the nations, there is no good news for us in hearing that Christ is the king and that Christ is the prophet. None. 
In fact, I want to press this a step further. Christ's priestly action in offering himself as an atoning sacrifice is necessary to Christ's resurrection, ascension, and enthronement as king. His priestly action is also necessary to his receiving the Holy Spirit as a gift that he pours out upon us, necessary to his current intercession on our behalf, and necessary to his returning to judge the living and the dead. I I hope you heard what I just said. If Christ is not the priest, if Christ is not the priest who offered himself as a substitutionary atonement, a penal substitutionary atonement for us and our sins, for the nations, then there is no gospel. And further, there is no resurrection. There is no ascension. There is no current rule and reign. There is no intercession on our behalf. There is no pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. To establish all that, I want to make three sub-points. First, Christ's exaltation. We're going to look at that in verse 13. Second, Christ's humiliation. We'll look at that in verse 14 through 15a. You like that? We're going to get real nerdy now. And third, Christ's proclamation, verse 15. Why I don't have to worry about getting nerdy is because you're all here at 8 o'clock in the morning to hear someone teach the Bible. So that's already established. Let's look together. Christ's exaltation, Christ's exaltation, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Before I carry on, let me, let me give a caveat so that we don't end up confusing you. We are speaking here, and Isaiah is speaking here, about Christ in his appointed office as mediator. He's not speaking about the Son of God as essential glory. The Son of God does not need to be exalted. He is God. Christ is the eternal Son of God who took humanity to himself, and as the Son of God, he is ever the King of glory. Yet Jesus has an appointed office. The Son was appointed to an office by the Father, which he took willingly. And that office is the office of mediator. So we're speaking about the exaltation of the Messiah, the God-man, the one who was sent to do the will of the Father. Now note what Isaiah 52, 13 says of Christ, our mediator. He is high and lifted up and exalted. Now how could this be good news for us if we're still in our sins? How can that be good news if you're in your sins? He is in the presence of here as he's speaking, of the Holy One. Look, look, at, look at Isaiah 6. Keep your hand there in Isaiah 52 and look over at Isaiah 6. Remember this language. I saw the servant. Behold my servant, he shall act wisely. He is high and lifted up and exalted. Now look at Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. What does it say? High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, 
and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me. He calls a curse upon himself. In the presence of a holy God, why? For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. Now what does he mean by that? And I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is in the presence of the Holy One. The one who is high and lifted up, and he is undone. He is unraveling, coming apart at the seams, because he is a sinner. So how can the servant, being high and lifted up and exalted, possibly be good news for us as sinners? When Isaiah is in his presence, Isaiah is literally disintegrating. Because of his sin. And the sin of his people. Go to Isaiah 33. Isaiah 33. I know some of you know the answers partially there in Isaiah 6, but I don't want to go there right now. Isaiah 33. And look at verse 10. Now I will arise says the Lord, the Lord Yahweh. Now I will arise, look at the three terms. I will arise, now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Who is the one who has risen, who is lifted up, and who is exalted? The Lord, Yahweh. And who can draw near to him or dwell with him? Look at verse 13. Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppression, who shakes his hands, lest they, are, they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from be, hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Which of you does that describe? Who can draw near to this one who is arisen? who is high and lifted up and exalted? Who can draw near to this holy God, this consuming fire? None of us, in and of ourselves. There is only one man who's ever met this description, the servant of Yahweh. Only Christ, the servant of Yahweh, meets this description. He is the king of beauty, whom our eyes will see. And if we do not know him, we will see him, we will see him as the one we've pierced and we will wail on account of him. 
If our sins are atoned for and we are his friends, then it's glorious, gloriously good news that has come. Look at Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. I want you to see this language again. For thus says the one who is what? High and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I will dwell in the high and holy place. Where will he dwell? The one who is holy, whose name is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. Where will he dwell? I will dwell in the high and holy place. Now notice the next phrase, though. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That is stunning. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus is the Lord, the King, who is high and lifted up and exalted. He inhabits eternity, and his name is holy. And yet he also is the one who dwells with him, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. How can that be? How can the one who is high and lifted up and exalted and holy, the one who is a consuming fire, how can he dwell with sinners. Saints were shown again and again that this is because of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Christ's humiliation to the point of death, even death on a cross, is the ground of his exaltation as our mediatorial king. You hear that in the hymn in Philippians 2? You hear that in Hebrews 1, don't you? Long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers and the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen to Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace himself, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Listen, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus by the blood of the eternal covenant. Did you hear that? Christ was brought again from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. How can that be? Well, the blood of Christ is not the effectual power behind God's resurrection. God can resurrect whoever he wants, whenever he wants, as to sheer power. What is it talking about then? What Hebrews is saying is that it is only upon Christ fulfilling his priestly service in humiliation to the point of death through making an offering of the atoning sacrifice that he was sent to make that he is resurrected. 
that he is high and lifted up and exalted as the reigning and ruling king. And that leads to our second point, Christ's humiliation. Second sub-point, really. And I'm looking at the clock. Christ's humiliation, verse 14. Verse 14. Notice the change in Isaiah 52. First, he's high, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now notice what he says. As many were astonished at you. What are they astonished by? His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Do you understand the contrast here between high and lifted up and exalted? Here is the one who's described as Yahweh. Now being described as a man who is so marred that he's not even recognizable as a human being and his form beyond that of the children of mankind now note verse if you will 15a so shall he sprinkle many nations it is through his marring beyond human semblance that he shall sprinkle many nations the language of sprinkling the nations, the sprinkling the nations is Levitical language for guilt offerings. For guilt offerings. It's even used in Leviticus 16 regarding guilt offerings on the Day of Atonement. The priest would sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrifice upon the altar. And here Christ is sprinkling the nations with his own blood. He is atoning for them. Isaiah 53 makes this clear, really clarifies what's being said here in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. I want to look there. I'm not going to dig too far into Isaiah 53, but I want to look at the passage. Look at verse 1, Isaiah 53, because this is the continuance of this same servant song. Who has believed what he's heard from us? By the way, that's picked up in Romans 10, and I think verse 16, 15 or 16. Who has believed what he's heard from us? Paul quotes that there, and the answer is not many. Not many. Who's believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the one, is if you will, the, the power of God that brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And in Isaiah, the arm of the Lord is personified as Yahweh himself. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Pay attention. Here is Yahweh, the arm of the Lord, who is also a man. One who suffered. One whom we did not esteem. One who was rejected and despised. I want to pay attention to the emphasis upon this servant being a penal substitutionary atonement. And I want you to notice the language here in the rest of this song. He does not just suffer for us as the sacrifice or the victim, the animal that's brought forward, if you will. He doesn't just suffer for us. He 
offers himself as that sacrifice. Consider a few facts. He was appointed by the Father and did this voluntarily. Look at Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Did you just hear that? He was appointed by the Father to this. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He is both appointed by the Father and making an offering for guilt. The Father appoints him. He does it voluntarily. Further, he substituted himself for us. In our place condemned, he stood. Look at Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But, now here's the answer. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He substituted himself for us. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. That's how it looked to us. But actually, he was innocent. He was standing there in our place. He suffered as the victim, the sacrifice, that's for sure. Look at verses 7 and following. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We were like sheep that went astray. He was the sheep who set his face like flint for Jerusalem. Never went astray from what God had given him. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his judgment, our generation, who considered that he was cut off, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. His blood was shed like the sacrificial animal. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. Hear that? If we do not have a penal substitutionary atonement in Christ, we have no forgiveness of sins. Guilt is forgiven. It's forgiven. That's why Jesus is going to send the apostles to the nations in Luke 24 to do what? Repent to preach about his suffering and exaltation or resurrection and what? The gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. This is the payment of our debt we're talking about. He paid our penalty. Verse 5 again. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed. Verse 8 again. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of of the living. Stricken 
for the transgression of my people. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This reverberates to Hebrews 12 too for me. You, you know that passage. He, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Why? For the joy set before him. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall, devoid, uh, he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressor, transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You hear his exaltation, his reward, his intercession is all founded upon his penal substitutionary sacrifice for us. He made a penal offering for guilt, for transgression, iniquity, and sin. He made the priestly offering of himself. Please remember this. Christ was not just a sufferer or a victim. Christ was also an offerer of himself as the sacrifice. The priest appointed is appointed on behalf of men to bring the offering that expiates, cleanses, and brings about forgiveness and propitiates, satisfies the wrath of God. Christ is this offerer and the offering. Finally, let's talk about the proclamation of Christ's work. Verse 15 of Isaiah 52. And this will drive us into the last point I'm making, which is rough, is fairly short. Christ's proclamation. Notice what it says in the second part of verse 15. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Now why are the kings shutting their mouths because of him? We know that in Isaiah, the unbelieving kings will prostrate themselves. In several passages of Isaiah, the unbelieving kings will prostrate themselves before the Lord. These wicked kings will eat the dust, and their mouths will be silenced. But what is this silence? What is this shutting of the mouth? I, I want to contend this is the silence of faith. The Apostle Paul quotes this text. Do you know that? In Romans 15, 21. As the basis for his call to go to unreached nations. I, I make it my ambition not to build on another man's foundation, but to name Christ where he has never been named, and then he quotes this text. The Spirit is making it clear this is the silence of belief. Friends, the wisdom of God makes foolish the wisdom of the world. The kings and the nations see people worshiping a man, a Jew who died on a cross, and that appears to be foolish. So they mock but upon his resurrection and ascension and pouring out of the Holy Spirit, their eyes are opened by the Spirit to see the foolishness of their wisdom. 
They see the power of God in Christ's humiliation at the cross. And their mouths are shut with wonder and awe. See, the cross of Christ is foolishness to the world. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And it shuts our mouths with wonder and awe. When you see the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, for you and for your sins, your mouth is stopped in silence and awe. You're humbled and contrite and you tremble at his word. You're filled with faith and the fear of the Lord. You're overwhelmed by gratitude and you want to leap for joy like a calf from the stall. And the question is, do you know him? I know we're at a missions conference, but I don't know the state of your hearts. Do you know Christ? Have you cast yourself upon him for grace? Are you trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins? If not, you may wonder, how do I receive this Savior, and how do I benefit from his work? Look, Isaiah 54 will go on to sing in response to the suffering servant. Isaiah 55 will tell you how to receive him. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Hear that? He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. D- incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast sure love for David. If you want Christ and his benefits, he's yours for free. As Luther says, You only need to come to him like a beggar with an empty hand and receive him. And that leads to my application, how I kind of want to land this. As Christ's church, as Christ's church, Christ has made a priestly offering for us, and we make a priestly offering of the nations to him. Let me give you one preliminary here. If you do know Christ, then what is your first priestly service? In view of God's mercy, Romans 12, 1, summing up. Romans 1, 16, all the way through Romans 11. In view of God's mercy, therefore, offer your bodies. Hear that word? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. This is your acceptable worship. You offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He offered himself for you. You offer yourself to him. You offer yourself to him. Not as an atoning sacrifice. Not to earn the grace that he's already given you. But because Christ has offered himself to you. And you have him and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him as a gift of the Father and his love to you. Because of that now offer yourselves to him. Give him everything. Not just, hey, go about life and occasionally exalt him. Go about life and maybe you'll suffer, but pour out your life unto death for him. Offer yourselves. We talk about this a lot in missions. Well, you're going to suffer. 
I want to back up and say, instead of talking about you're going to suffer, let's start saying you're going to offer. If you're not going to offer your life, no matter what comes, if you're not going to pour out your life like a drink offering, Paul, Philippians 3, and 2 Timothy 4, then don't go. Stay home. Offer yourself. There's a priestly offering that Christ's church makes beyond this. The Apostle Paul has this calling as a uniquely historical and redemptive work, but as the church built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, the baton is passed to us. So look at Romans 15. We'll end here. Romans 15 and verse 14. The book of Romans um, is often emphasized because of its exalted doctrine of salvation. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably one of the most complete, um, if you will, explications of our salvation in Christ that you're going to find anywhere in Scripture, particularly from chapters 1 through 11. You're also going to get quite extensive teaching on the Holy Spirit and its work in chapter 8 and, and, and other things. But what it's often not focused on as properly enough is a missionary support letter. Now, my missionaries don't write letters like this to the church, but Paul is seeking missionary support. He's going to ask for it in Romans 15. But look what he says about his work. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. This is Paul talking about the church at Rome. That you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God, give, grace given me by God. Now, the grace given him by God, if you remember Romans 1, 5, we have received the grace of apostleship. To what? To bring about the obedience of faith among all nations for the sake of his name. That's the grace given to him. He's going to go on to say this, the grace of God that makes me a minister, verse 16, to be a minister, a servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified in the Holy Spirit. See, this grace of God makes him a minister, a servant of Christ Jesus to the nations in the priestly service of the gospel of God. And what is Paul's priestly service of the gospel of God? And by extension, what is the church's priestly service? Well, Paul's not having to offer any more atoning sacrifices, for Christ has once for all put an end to all sacrifices in the offering of himself. So what is Paul's priestly service of the gospel of God? Look at verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. It is my honor. That language can be translated. To preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. It is my honor to preach the gospel to name Christ where he's never been named. The proclamation of the gospel of Christ and him crucified 
is Paul's priestly service in the gospel. Paul, with Peter, understands that we are a royal priesthood so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And thus, look at what Paul's offering is, verse 16 again, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. And by who is this offering sanctified, consecrated, set apart for holy use? By the Holy, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Christ's priestly service is to atone for our sins by the offering of himself upon the cross. Paul's priestly service is to proclaim Christ and his work, offering those who are saved, this church that's been born, back to the Lord, and that church is not sanctified by Paul's priestly service. That church is sanctified by Christ's priestly service being applied to them by the Holy Spirit as he proclaims the gospel. This is all the work of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That's us. We're the jars of clay. Paul's priestly service is to proclaim Christ in his work. And the Holy Spirit's work is to effectually apply that word to his people. So they're offered to God as an acceptable offering. In other words, the Holy Spirit has been poured out so that we might continue the work of Christ. Not by adding anything to it in substitutionary atonement, nor by employing, listen, nor by employing the wisdom of this world to find a new message or a new method that the world finds wise. But by announcing, listen, by announcing, heralding, and proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. Gospel ministers, we offer ourselves to this end. We are poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of the faith of Christ's church. This is not incidental to, nor is this a mere portion of Christian ministry. This is the Christian ministry. This is the Christian ministry. Christ's work on my behalf shuts my mouth in reverence of awe and awe of such grace to a sinner like me that he, the Lord of glory, would lay down his life for me. And then it sends me out like a joyous herald who makes him known to the ends of the earth. Pastors and missionaries, you have one job. Preach Christ and him crucified. May the Spirit make us faithful to this end. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the work of your servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, for the salvation that we know in his name, and for the privilege we have of proclaiming him to the ends of the earth. May we be faithful to that end, to preach Christ and him crucified so that our faith may rest in the power of God and not in man. In Jesus' name, amen.